Hello everyone and welcome to our first episode of Political Agenda, a fortnightly podcast on Singaporean issues and current affairs, brought to you by New Narrative. New Narrative is a Southeast Asian platform for journalism, research, art and community organisation by Southeast Asians and for Southeast Asians. Join our movement for a better Southeast Asia at www.newnarrative.com. We're recording this on 7th of August, two days before National Day. And so this week, we're talking National Day and Singaporean nationalism. With us today is my co-host, the brilliantly talented Kirsten Han, who is New Narrative's Editor-in-Chief. And note everyone, the name is Kirsten, Kirsten, not Kristen, not Christine, not Karen, Kirsten. How are you doing today, Kirsten? I'm good, thank you. Fantastic. We have two guests on the show today. First is the legendary Glenn Green, master of stage and cinema. How are you, Glenn? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so for those pleasure. of you who don't know, Glenn is legit, yo. He <laughs> acted as M. Butterfly opposite Anthony Hopkins. That's Hannibal freaking Lecter. What was that like, Glenn? <laughs> it was fantastic. It was do you, a great do you still, experience. Do you still keep in touch with him? No, 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 no. He's, he's, he's Hollywood A-lister. You know, <laughs> I'm just a you know, working director. <laughs> well, uh, you were nominated for an Olivier Award, weren't you? Yes, I was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you didn't win. I, I'm sure it was total robbery you should have won. Well, they, they wouldn't give it to an Asian actor. <laughs> <laughs> right. This was what, 1990? 1990. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, Glenn is also famous for his two critically acclaimed films, uh, Forever Fever and Blue Mansion, and That's you've got right. a few others, right? You've yes, got coming out? I just made a Pointe Art film, which is coming out in February next year. Cool, yes. fantastic. Looking forward to it. So also with us today is Professor Ian Chong, Professor of Political Science at the National University of Singapore. Welcome, Ian. You can drop the professor thing. It's very daunting to me. <laughs> okay, Ian Chong. Uh, Ian's an expert on international relations and politics in the Asia-Pacific. So for those of you who are concerned about our relationship with China and all the issues we're having, this is the man to ask. If you ask me, right, forget about the Kishore, Bilahari. You want to know about China and IR, you talk to Ian Chong. Thank you. That's very high praise. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 the reason I'm here is because I thought someone promised me dinner already. <laughs> <laughs> I was promised some alcohol. <laughs> soon, soon, soon. We'll get around to that. <laughs> Okay, so uh, today we're talking Singaporean nationalism and National Day, right? So, Ian, why don't you kick us off? You know, you've done a lot of work on this. Uh, what is Singaporean nationalism? Is there, is, do we even have a nation? I suppose we need to start off by talking about what nationalism is and what a nation is or might be. Because I think uh, Singapore nas Singaporean nationalism is a variation of that. If you consider what a nation is, um, it's, in the words of uh, Benedict Anderson, it's an imagined community. I think that's quite an apt. Uh, Break that down for our listeners. What do you mean, imagined right, community? Right, right. I'm yeah. getting them, getting them. Okay, okay, uh, okay. So, so it's, uh, it's a, by imagine, it means to say that we all believe that we're all part of uh, the same political entity, that we share certain fates, that we share certain traits. Uh, and it's imagined because, I mean, if you think about the, was it four million Singapore citizens, how many have you actually met? How many do you actually know? 
And uh, how many do, of these who you've met and you know, how many do you actually get along with? I say this because the idea of a nation is supposed to transcend this sort of individual experience. So I and someone else who I've never met can both sort of feel that we are part of this uh, same entity, right? And this is important for political organization because th here comes the next bit, uh, which which is the state. State and nation are not synonymous. They are some, you, you get a term nation state because they're two separate things. What a state does is sometimes it tries to organize and mobilize this idea of a nation uh, towards some political purpose, towards some political end. Um, often, historically, it has been to wage war. Wow, that's really heavy, man. <laughs> I'm sorry you asked me. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, not, not, not what you said, but this, this idea that um, because we believe in a nation, you know, we get mobilized for war, we're willing to fight and die and kill. And there's a, there's a man 10 kilometers away in Johor, right, who may be exactly like us, but because he's on the other side of a quote-unquote national border and he belongs to a different nation so suddenly he's an opponent that we should be willing to fight against to defend our idea of nation right but this this is kind of the origin of nation isn't it it's a very modern concept that or at least the you know one predominant school of thought of nationalism uh, not to get too technical but it, it argues that it is a very modern construct that arose really post-World War One, with the idea of, uh, you know, with the crumbling of um, the land empires in Europe and uh, the need to justify the new states that arose out of it as somehow these coherent entities that were distinct from the empires that fell apart. So for Singapore, though, uh, let's take a step back in our, our history. Um, we didn't have a sense of nation until quite recently. We were never supposed to be quote-unquote Singaporean, right? It's, um, you know, we were for a long time supposed to be Malayan and then Malaysian and then suddenly we had this thrust upon us and then the government had to create this sense of nationhood out of a people who thought of themselves as Malayan, I mean, that, that was really what happened right away. After we split from Malaysia, suddenly the, this desperate need to distinguish ourselves and any reasonable reading of our history said that we were part of Malaya. So what Rajaratnam as Minister of Culture did was he tried to wipe the whole slate clean, right? He said, we have no history. We are the new people, you know, and uh, Singapore history starts now. And so then they tried to create this whole idea of Singaporeanness. Uh, from you know, from from uh, a supposed blank slate. Yeah, but lots of lots of places do that. You think about the Declaration of Independence in the U.S. It attempts to do that same thing. Uh, when you look at the French Revolution, they attempt to sort of start things on a blank slate as well. It is not a a process that's unique to Singapore. Right. Let's hear from from the rest of the the table. How, how do you guys feel? What is Singaporean? Do you feel like there's something organic about Singaporean nationalism, or is it something really artificial? It feels like a lot of the things that I personally, like emotionally associate with being Singaporean kind of almost happened despite the government rather than what has been imposed. So for example, there have been cases of 
the government trying to impose particular values as Singaporean to kind of back up some sort of policy goal, right? So at some point, there was this whole rugged nation thing. Everybody is rugged <laughs> because we are tough people, resilient people, because they were trying to shop national service more. And so there's a lot of these top-down things. But a lot of the things that I would associate with Singapore and what I imagine when I think of Singapore as home and my country and my nation are things that maybe didn't really get kind of establishment approval, like Singlish, like hearing dialects in markets and things like that. So I think there is like a, for me, I always see like a sort of disjointedness between what the government, what those at the top want me to feel about being Singaporean and what I actually feel about Singapore, being Singaporean. Yes, I agree with Kirsten. Um, particularly, um, we talk about Singlish, for example. It's certainly something not top, uh, you know, n not from the state. Um, they didn't promote Singlish. Uh, Singlish was just yeah, a quite very, the opposite. Yeah, yeah, it's just completely organic. I mean, of course, Singlish uh, in Malaysia they had their form of, of what they call Manglish, and so in a way, Singlish was already part of that. You know, so that so there's always been been that. So I think that that's very interesting because I think language is very very important. Um, and in spite of despite all the efforts by the ministry, the various ministries to abolish it or to try to make us speak, promote good English, um, you know, people still spoke Singlish because that's what um, Singaporeans do. You know. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like I was just reading that interview on bandwagon with Dick Lee and Kit Chan and Sydney Tan about home and why home is such a well-loved National Day song and everything. And Dick Lee was saying. It wasn't for National Day, it was for Sing Singapore. And at first they didn't quite get it because they're like, why is it so sad? Why isn't it not like rara, like stand up for Singapore? Why does it start with whenever I'm feeling low? Like, why do Singaporeans feel low? Like, um, and, and he said, you know, they didn't really expect it to do so well because at first it wasn't looked upon as your average National Day song. It wasn't dictated by the state what should be in the song. It was a song he'd written to submit to Sing Singapore. And in that way, it was actually uh, one of the National Day songs that kind of was more grassroots than top-down. And it's just taken on such a life of its own that now you can't, you can't really have a National Day parade without somebody singing some rendition of Home at some point. And so I, find that, I found that really interesting because it kind of shows that what resonates with people isn't always what the state says. In fact, it's very often not what the state thinks should resonate or should be presented. Glenn, if you don't mind my asking, I mean, you were really successful in London, but then you chose to come home in yes. 2002, speaking of home, right? And, yes. And then you started Wild Rice? Uh, no, Wild Rice was already started by uh, my partner, Ivan Heng. And he, he was also living in London at the time. And we both had theatre companies, and very successful theatre companies in London in the 90s, um, both separate theatre companies. But I think Ivan was invited to um, come back to Singapore to um, be artistic director of the Singapore Repertory Theatre. Right. Uh, and then uh, when he left, he started Wild Rise and then he invited me to join him. So I was living in London for 20 years. Wow, that's yes. a long time. Um, why did you come home? <laughs> I knew you could ask yeah, me that. <laughs> I knew you could ask yeah. me that. Um, I'm going to cut long story short because we'll be here the whole night. Um, and because I, I don't really have a particular answer, there isn't a, a real answer why I came back. But I think um, now with hindsight, because it's been 14 years since I've been back, um, I think I, I came back because ultimately I realized at the age of 40 that 
um, London wasn't really my home. I, I didn't spend my formative years there. I wasn't there during my childhood or my teenagehood. Um, and I certainly wasn't there, um, you know, in my, in my late teens. Um, I only left for um, the UK when I was about uh, verging on 21. So my formative years were spent in, in Singapore, um, um, all the way up to national service. I only left on the day after national service. Um, and I think turning 40, I realized that um, England wasn't really my home. Um, and I still, my family and my friends were still here in Singapore. And um, yeah, so um, when Ivan invited me to join Wild Rice, um, I took it up. Yep. So uh, the question then, then, you know, I was thinking, is, is nationalism really just friends and family, familiarity, right? How would... How how we supposed, how do we articulate this sense of Singaporeanness? Sometimes I envy other countries and their citizens because they claim to have a a set of core shared values that have evolved through their history rather than imposed on them, right? And they talk about you know the you know, Americans and their uh, the American dream and the British and their sense of fairness, you know, and we don't seem to have anything beyond what we're familiar with, right? And we, we kind of cling to these things as Singaporeanness. but is there really something that we share um, that can be, you know, that really is authentically, organically Singaporean, kind of like the song, right? Something that mm. we chose for ourselves. Mm. I don't know. What, how do you feel, Yun? Okay, so I... Uh... I guess I can I can give you the sort of convoluted um, professor type answer, <laughs> and then I'll get to more straightforward. Because I think it's important to 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 preface it here. So I think it's also important to recognize that being a citizen and being part of a nation are not necessarily synonymous. In many places, they are because when you have the idea of a nation state, uh, the state part demands citizenship. The nation bit demands that you're part of this nation. But you can easily be part of a nation without being part of the same state. So, for instance, if you think about the Germans and Austrians, right, they are, and, and also, I suppose, part of, the, uh, part of the Swiss, right, they can conceivably be part of a Germanic nation, but they can belong to different states. That's totally fine. Uh, I suppose you can make a similar claim uh, about um, different ethnic groups in Singapore. So, I am very comfortable in saying that I'm ethnic Chinese. But I am a Singaporean. I'm a Singaporean citizen. I think the rights, obligations, and uh, uh, restraints, responsibilities of being Singaporean are important, right? Uh, and that get, gets to where you were going with the, the UK and the US. For them, there's a, there was, in their nation and state building projects, there was an overt effort to make individuals into citizens, not just that they have a primordial feel for speaking the same language, or having the same cultural markers? Well, not primordial, but evolved over time, right? No, no, or at no. least through some sort of trauma or, or, you know, event. Well, yeah, so trauma is often a very um, useful way. I wouldn't say it's necessarily good, but a very useful way to create a sense of belonging. Uh, this sense of trauma, this sense of threat, it's very, very common. So, so countries that have, or states that have a revolutionary heritage like to yeah. um, talk about th that trauma. But I think beyond it, it's also a sense of, uh, if you're talking about a citizen, right? 
what what do you think uh, are your responsibilities as a citizen? How do you add to take from uh, participate in the political life uh, of 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 the nation? Because that's the point. It's not just a passive thing. That as a citizen, you have something to bring to the political life. It's not something we like. Uh, we're very comfortable or familiar with talking about in Singapore, but. Uh, by its sort of very idea, right, going back to the ancient Greeks about citizenship, it means to participate in political life. So it's how, the question is how we participate in political life. Well, is that, then, is that why we, we struggle with this idea of Singaporean identity? Because the government doesn't want us participating in politics, right? We've had, uh, you know, 50, nearly 60 years here, here of a government which explicitly wants to monopolize politics and defines our sort of citizenship and identity as one which is apolitical, non-political, right? And does that undermine our, our sense of nation, nationalism then? Because we can't, we can't take part. So what, what is, you know, if you can't take part in the nation, why would you identify, or the state, you know, why would you identify with it? So I think with ideas of nation, citizenship, and the state, they are always going to be contested ideas. So on the one hand, right, you can say, well, to choose to be apolitical, right? That choice is a political choice. Well, but we don't but, have that choice. Well, I suppose even if you accept it, it's an implicit choice, you can argue. But the, the whole point is that it's, um, these ideas are ultimately contested. So that's how you get to the sort of evolution of, of nations, the, uh, the development of states over time. So the question then comes down to, uh, what is it that people are willing to contest about in, uh, in their state. Or maybe it's, about no maybe it's about nothing. Maybe there's nothing to contest about. But in such a situation, um, what you uh, may be faced with is that your autonomy, your ability to express yourself um, in, in the sort of political sense of being a citizen, of taking that ownership, right? You are ceding that for someone else to dictate for you. Maybe some people are okay with that. Uh, but th this, these are issues that are uh, for any other uh, polity where uh, contestation is more normalised, uh, it's something that happens continually. I think one thing that's made me think more about what is citizenship and what does it mean? What does it mean to be a citizen? What are the responsibilities, two-way responsibilities, right? Not just citizens responsible to mm -hmm. give, but what does the state, what is the state's responsibility to us is when you look at all the rhetoric and the comments about whether Ben Davies should be getting his deferment. And you know, all these comments of like, oh, his father, and he doesn't have the interests of Singapore at heart. It's for his own personal pursuit. And then people saying, oh, yes, you know, he should serve the nation first. But then what is, what is this kind of contract, like supposed contract? Like why, if he gets this once in a lifetime opportunity, what is it about his responsibility that he has to give that up for the nation? Or, in, if you look at it the other way, what is the nation's responsibility to support a Singaporean trying to achieve his goal, which is not an easy goal. Like, not everybody gets a contract to play in EPL, right? Like, who could, who could do that? He is the, it's, it's, so, it's such a new controversial issue precisely because he is the first Singaporean to get this contract. And so what is the responsibility of the nation or the state to support this goal, rather than everybody just talking about, oh, does he have Singapore's interests at heart? Is he, as a citizen, is he even required to put that as the number one priority over his own career, over his own development? 
So we, we don't really talk about that. And then when it comes up in these cases, it becomes very bogged down in the detail of that particular case without talking about the values and principles of what it even means to be a citizen. What does it mean to have responsibilities to a nation? You know, just now you're talking about definition of uh, citizenship in, in, in the Greek Greek times, right? So um, what was that again? Uh, citizens supposed to be involved in... Right. in the political life of the polity, right? Right. So, so when you talk about political life, I mean, that's also very broad, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean politics. Right. Right. Yeah, so... Well, it doesn't mean, have to mean partisan politics. Yeah. There, there mm. are all kinds of ways that we participate right. in politics in, from very micro ways to very macro yes. ways. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so, I mean, one thing I like to show to my students, right, is, um, you know, when every, every time you use money, uh, you are reaffirming the sort of legal tender of the sovereign nation. You know, that is, in some ways, it's a very minute political act, but it is a political act. Right? You're saying that I believe that this note right, is legal tender. It has the backing of a state behind it. And I, I think getting back to the idea of what is the state's responsibility to us, I mean, ultimately, that's another reason why we want to be part of a state, right? It's because, um, like I said, it's this, on the state side, get people to mobilize to fight and all that. But for individual citizens, it's to say, well, I want protection. I want to have some redistribution. So on a very basic level, right, that, that's the sort of um, quid pro quo that happens. Uh, and it happens in a way that also, I, in the sort of idealized sense, uh, that applies to your ability to restrain what the state does. So states, um, in, a, in a more authoritarian sense, you, states can do whatever it is they want because they are supposedly have the authority uh, because we've delegated it. But uh, Is it a, because we've mandated them? So that's one... That's through, what, through voting? That, through that's elections. through voting or by not challenging. That's one view. Mm -hmm. Another view is to say, look, the state, if the state is our representative, then we have a hold on it. We, we can and should restrain what it can and should do and what it cannot do. Uh, so this is where the sort of limitations of state power and all that come in. There isn't so much in uh, the Singapore discussion of, of, of nation, but it's certainly uh, quite part of what you see in other efforts to, to build nationhood, to build states. So uh, one example is if you think about the Sunflower Movement in Taiwan, this is 2014, where many people took to, to the streets, they occupied the legislature. Now, the idea behind it, right, was that, look, the executive has gone off and signed this agreement that is very suspect. The legislature has ceded its responsibility and not really questioned it. Uh, so there's some need for citizens to hold back what the state is doing, to say, wait a minute, maybe going fast, that idea of efficiency being equated to speed, isn't something that is necessarily good. Maybe thinking things through uh, is quite important. So that's actually an exercise of uh, an effort. It's an effort to exercise restraint on the state. So how did the people of Taiwan do it? Well, they organized. Um, and you mean public rallies? So, so public rallies are one way. Uh, mm. That's certainly one thing that they did. Which we can't do in Singapore anyway. Well, yes, you, it's, we, can't, we can't do it legally in Singapore, obviously. <laughs> now... Um, it's, uh, I mean, there, there are different ways, uh, there are different uh, mechanisms to try to pull the state back. In Singapore, I suppose, um, we have a more sort of pedestrian, well, maybe you write letters, you, you try to get an online petition. But of course, um, the question is, how effective are these in different situations? Uh, and I suppose in Singapore, we're fortunate not to have a case where there's so much state overreach uh, that we have to test how much we can uh, pull it back. Really? Thank you putting a positive spin on what is really 
you know, authoritarian oppression, limitation of our rights to as- assemble and, and to protest, which are enshrined in our constitution, and which, let's not forget, we used to win independence in the 50s, right? We were out there, we protested, you know, we had rallies, we had strikes, and these are all part of our history that is very much suppressed by the government. Well, let me... And, you let, know, specifically, as I mentioned earlier, to exclude us from political participation. Well, specifically, I said that that's, uh, we have no legal means. Uh, to do so. Now, the yeah, question would be... We do be, have... I mean, it is in the Constitution that right, we have these rights, right, right, but, but they're limited by right, the law. Right, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. But the thing is, um, if you think about how the civil rights movement uh, gained the sort of openness, or the suffrage movement uh, gained the kinds of rights that they, they did, um, suffice to say that uh, sometimes it's important to think about what legality means and where the... Um, edges of legality might be and might possibly be pushed? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of contexts in which things are outlawed but are strategically breached to make the point that, you know, um, bad law is not to be recognised. Bad law is to be called out for being bad law and we will not respect bad law. And so civil disobedience, this whole idea of civil disobedience is to strategically do things that are illegal to push the point Right, and I'm th- I mean, it's also important to recognize that legality and justice are not necessarily synonymous, right? So, um, is it, was it legal to have slaves? Sure. Was it just to have slaves? Probably not. I mean, in our own context, of course, was it legal to be anti-colonial? No. But we were all, you know, we had a massive anti-colonial movement anyway. Sure. Because it was just. Okay, so let's talk about this, uh, you know, uh, uh, the specific sort of construction of nationalism in Singapore as seen through the, um, you know, uber nationalist event that is National Day. Right now, Glenn, you were creative director for National Day for what, four years? 03 um, to 06, is it? 03 to 06, that's right, yes. What was that like? Um, it was fun, you know. I mean, it was it, it's it's a very big epic um, project and um, great opportunity for a theatre director. Who usually, you know, my last play was performed in front of 150 uh, seater theatre, you know, 150 audience members. Uh, this is before being performed in front of 55,000 people live, and of course, two million um, in their homes watching um, the NDP. So it was a great opportunity for me. Um, I have to say that. Um, when I was creative director, um, it was under the, the previous prime minister, um, Go Chok Tong. Um, I started in 2002, 2003, 2004. Um, times were different then, I think. Um, so I was, anyway, so I can only speak from, from my own experience um, of, of that time. Wait, what, what do you mean times were, I mean, do you feel like there's a difference between NDP? I mean, well, it's we, not your about last, NDP, it's your not last about NDP, year was under I, Lee Hsien Long, was it? Well, no, I, I, the reason why I mention it is because I, I feel that there's been a shift, um, uh, not actually in the NDP, but, you know, from 2004 onwards, right. um, I think things changed. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, not necessarily in NDP, but I, I think, but it, it certainly under, I mean, under, under the, the state government that I was working under, I suppose you could say, um, in 2002, 2003, than four, um, yeah, I, I, I think it, Singapore was different then. I, I, it was a Singapore that I came came back to anyway uh, after having been in London for twenty years, um, and I thought there was um, a change. You know, I, I mean, I, you know, I thought this is Singapore that I had 
was it was it was a different Singapore that I had returned to, and um, the uh, the army who, who conducts the National Day Parade, um, they they were the generals and the colonels and the lieutenant colonels, um, all had been educated in England or in America, and they all seemed um, very progressive, and um, I had a great time working with them. Um, the, the, yeah, I, 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 I don't know, but personally, I think um, things have changed um, in 2004 onwards um, in, in Singapore. It's as though there's a wave of conservatism which has uh, entered. Um, that's the way I feel. I don't know how, how you guys feel. I would love to hear what you guys feel, but that, that's how I felt. Um, I was just wondering, how much freedom do you get to like plan and execute? Um, at the time, again, um, we had a lot of freedom, yeah. Um, we, we, as, as I said, uh, you know, I, I work with the military, right, and um, with the generals and the colonels, and it's it's really uh, a, a lot depending on the sort of committee that you have working with you and how progressive they want to be. And I think in two thousand two, two thousand three, I mean, the very the very thought of actually inviting a theatre director to direct the NDP, and that, this is the first time they invited the theatre director, uh, somebody outside the establishment, so to speak. Um, uh, so, and, you know, so I, I thought that was very pro progressive of them. They, they, were, they were opening up the NDP um, to outside, um, yeah. So outside walk, walk us through the process here. So, you know, in National Day parades usually have a theme. Who decides the theme? Um, I'm very involved with, with, with that decision, um, but there's always um, many uh, levels of committees. Uh, but of course, it, it does, does start with, with, with uh, me and the military brigade, which is uh, conducting that year's NDP, and um, with, with, with committee within that uh, brigade. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, 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 will, we will brainstorm ideas. Um, yes, we are given a theme. I mean, the, the, the theme is you know, it's quite broad. It's quite broad, you know. They'll say something like uh, "one people, one nation," and then from there we can d decide okay, how so, so you're to given execute. a theme, and yes. then you execute. Yes. The theme. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. Yes, yes. But so where does that theme come from? Yeah. It comes from, I, I suppose, the president's office. I don't know. Or maybe Ministry of Home Affairs. I, 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 I or, you know, several ministries come up with it. I, I, I imagine. Right. Yeah, above your pay grade. <laughs> yes. Okay. So it comes to see you have this theme, and then you decide how to execute. Yeah, and we decide what the content's going to be. Right. Yeah. But how much leeway do you have? Does it always have to be you know national stadium? Does it always or or the float or you well, know, I, I, in, in 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 my case, um, I, I the, the three years I did was at the national stadium. Yeah, and it was it was fantastic. The national stadium, I mean, obviously so evocative, so historical. Um, so many things have happened in the National Stadium. I, I mean, the birth of the Kalang Wave, um, you know, the early years of football, mania in the 70s and 80s. Um, so, you know, it was wonderful to do um, a parade at the National Stadium. And um, I always like doing things in the round because you are actually communicating with your fellow audience members. You know, so when you shout or when you do the Kalang Wave, you're doing it at each you know, at each other and sharing it. So um, it's very much, uh, it, it was, it's very different from now. Now it's on the floating parade. So you don't really get interaction with your fellow audience members. Yeah. 
So give us an example then. How if you you do you remember any of the themes you had, and then how would you execute that as something to inspire Singaporeans to, <laughs> you know, suddenly feel this surge of pride and and aspire to the theme? Well, you know, I of course I it was very difficult for me to, um, you know, as as an artist, um, how how to bring a story, how to bring a narrative into such a big stadium, right? Um, but also I realized that I, I personally wanted to create something which was not necessarily propaganda, but a celebration, right? I mean, you know, I, I, it, it's a birthday party and I wanted people to celebrate it. I want people to en- enjoy it um, rather than um, push propaganda messages. Um, and that, that was where my starting point, you know, I, I want to tell a story and I want to make people feel good about, about being Singaporean. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that I felt was my job. Yeah. To make people feel yeah, ultimately good to be who they are, to be where, where they are. Yeah. Cool. Was was there anything like where you you kind of disagreed with something that happened and, and no, you know was pushed not, back? Not, you pushed back, they pushed back. Well, you know, I mean for, for, for me it was very important to showcase um youth and to showcase um you know people, talents from all different races. Uh, in my first year, in 2003, the finale item was um, Kuma. Um, um, so I think that was the first time, you know, you, you, had, you had Kuma in, 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 in Indian um, costume and dancing with a group of, of Indian dancers. Um, and the people I worked with thought that was really cool because, you know, it's being very inclusive and um, yeah, uh, I don't think Kukuma has ever performed again in the, the National Day Parade. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, so I, I, I don't know whether that was um, eventually discussed um, outside the NDP um, and whether somebody had made a complaint. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Why would anyone complain? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But you have in, so in your time was there the uh, military column? Yes, of yeah. course. That is like the how our NDPs first started, right? Um, it's about the military parade. I mean, the NDP begins and starts off. Uh, yeah, yeah. Historically, it's it's a military parade. Yeah, and then of course um, the show element is a mass parade. It's a a, a mass formation parade. Yeah, 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 and, and mass dance. Uh, I don't know where that comes from historically, but um, well, it's just to show that you can mobilize a lot of people, right? I mean, that's so. Whether you're talking about um, you know a mass dance, uh, having a lot of military, um, having a mass display of uh, other sorts, mm. being able to put your resources together to create lots of terracotta warriors. I mean, the idea is no. I mean, the idea, the principle behind it is very similar, right? It's to show that. My society, my polity, has the ability to mobilize all these resources towards a very solid, tangible end. And the signal behind it, one of course, is to allow the people within that polity to feel good about themselves, their ability to achieve something, uh, often warfare. Now, the, and the other is the outward demonstration to potential adversaries saying, look, uh, if you want to take us on, then it will cost you. So this is this tends to be the 
more martial element of these sorts of mass displays. But personally, yeah. I don't like mass displays so much, precisely because of this sort of element of it. Because of what? But this this sort of uh, overt show of martial ability. Right. I, I understand that it has its place, but mm. it's uh, this sort of overt show of um, military might. This sort of uh, overt sort of uh, threat. You know, I, idea of um, engineering a threat right. uh, is not something that I personally am that comfortable with. Yeah. So I think over the years, I, I mean, NDP started in the '60s and started as a military parade, and of course, it's not. Uh, unique to Singapore because sure. it, over the years, right, over the, the, the hundreds of years, um, countries from all over the world would have their own military parade. But I think they've tried to um, soften it over the years, um, and then the, the show, the show element became in a way more important, or at least um, be, uh, they, they tried to balance the, the military side of the of the parade. So there was a military element, which is the military parade, and then there was the show element. Um, culminating in the fireworks, so I think um, that has developed over the years so much so that you know pe people watch the, the right, television I'm, to watch the to watch the show and then to watch the fireworks, right? The entertainment side. Well, I might be overthinking this a little mm. bit, right? But to say that, look, I can get tens of thousands of people together to do a mass display and a mass show, um, also implicitly says I can get tens of thousands of people together to form an armed uh, contingent. So in that sense, the veneer, uh, the expression may be softer, but I think the underlying message is still quite similar. And uh, my, I guess one of the reasons for my discomfort, is apart from the sort of martial element, right, is the fact that you, when you have people in these sorts of mass kinds of displays, in a way it's, uh, it's very disciplined, so it has that sort of I suppose positive side to it, but also means to say that we're giving up to some degree our independent, our individual autonomy and agency. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe willingly, that's fine. But uh, for me, I suppose that ability to exercise your agency and autonomy is fairly important. Mm -hmm. uh, and to the extent that you can be mobilized towards some end, uh, right now I've been giving quite a positive spin to it. Mm -hmm. But it's historically been how. Uh, nations mobilize for war, uh, aggressively offensive war. Mm -hmm. It's been how uh, nations mobilize to eat in themselves. So you think about something like uh, uh, the the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution, that is mass mobilization as well. You use it to different ends, but it's the same means. So I suppose it's this means that I understand it needs to be there, it's, a, it's necessary, but I'm not completely comfortable with because I understand to the sort of more pernicious directions at which you can, can possibly go. What I feel uncomfortable with about National Day parades is watching the military element in how it feels like it's really entrenching the militarism in Singapore that, you know, you know, this is what patriotism is. This is what supporting Singapore is. You must support the military. The military is so strong. And then the different messages that come out. So I think it was last year's NDP that was like about terrorism and counterterrorism. And there were there were officers with rifles coming out of the audience and pointing their guns at the audience. Obviously, we know the guns are not loaded, but it's still a really effed up image to see them come out and point their rifles at the audience and then have like, a staged terrorist hostage situation where like there were hostage children who like get kidnapped, then they mm. have to come and outmaneuver and then pew, 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 shoot all the terrorists and save the kid with a teddy bear and then everybody dance together. Well, and it's it's really uncomfortable to see because it's so uncritically presented as yay and then like weaponry shoot people and it's also really weird to like 
reenact kidnapping children and like so okay so that's part of the parade. Well, so I wanted to jump in here because that also gets into one of the sort of double-sided elements of these kinds of displays. I mean, the overt message is look. We have this capable force here to protect you, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, in c- case of kidnapping and all that, which, which is, I suppose, Im- important. But the question that also remains is: Can this force then be uh, used for some other purpose? Could it be possibly turned onto its citizens? Uh, could could it then be sort of used in that sort of forceful manner? I'm saying it not because I think this is what will happen in Singapore in its immediate sense, but because you know. I look comparatively at different polities. This is what sometimes um, militaries, police forces have been repositioned to do. Uh, and it's this is where when I talk about restraint, restraint on the state, this is where it's important, right, to say, okay, no, you can't go there. And so sometimes when these displays are there, I, I probably it's my problem. I think to myself, oh, okay, so if this were to be used for some other purpose, what means are there to restrain ourselves? Uh, but again, this is probably just Ian Chong overthinking things as I usually do. <laughs> but it, it does feel, I think, it does feel more uncomfortable in the context that outside of National Day parades, we never ever talk about excesses of state power or restraint on law enforcement and armies and things like that. We never talk. We always talk about these are the special powers we need to give the police in case of serious incidents, but we never really talk about who checks that power? Where's the accountability? You know, we don't really talk about all this accountability until something really horrible happens, like, you know, a kid dies, then suddenly we all talk about the gun culture, like nobody's ever heard of the gun culture before that. You know, why does it need to wait till this long before you even talk about accountability? And so because these conversations don't happen, that makes the National Day Parade even more unsettling, I think, because if we talked about, like, um, checks on police power and military power for 364 days a year and then on day 365 we have this nice parade that's not as bad as the fact that we never talk about it at all and then we have this huge day where we completely lionize military right. and armed forces right so I, I guess you know when you talk when I talk about giving up your agency and your autonomy I suppose there's something um, as someone who's done an S uh, you see and maybe others have seen it too is, well, there's this stress on discipline not um, challenging authority, which is needed for armed force. But sometimes um, you see commanders, in your, my opinion at least, uh, going a bit overboard uh, with the way that they, they treat people who you know, don't toe the line. And the question is, okay, what do I do then? Are there any mechanisms I can use? Do I keep silent uh, and let this go on? And this is where the turkening stuff comes in. So. I think 99% of the time, nothing very serious happens. But you know, in that 1%, something very serious could happen. And by keeping silent, by sort of delegating away my um, agency, my autonomy, am I then being complicit to, uh, in, in some of these excesses? Um, and you know, that's one of those things that I, I, I struggle with myself. La. It, it feels like there's a sort of meta-narrative uh, here because if if we don't you know if we are coerced to do national service then this this idea that the authority can coerce us to do things then goes down to all the different levels of our military and even our civil service right our relationship to the state is a very one directional one very subservient one 
And, and that then breeds the kind of culture where you have that Tagan culture, where you have authority who, which is able to do these things without comfortability. Right. And, and this also then comes back to Ben Davis and, and his, uh, you know, this issue of what is uh, national service because he's this, this idea of serving the nation is imposed on us and it's such a limited, strict one. You can only serve in one way. You know, in, in other countries, you could do national service by working as an orderly in a hospital, something like that, right? And especially if you are a conscientious, conscientious objector because of your religion, because of your moral conviction, whatever, maybe you serve longer, but you do it, you work in a hospital, you know, cleaning up old people's poop or something. And that is also seen as a way to serve your nation, your people, your state, your country. But we have such strict definitions here that are non-negotiable and imposed on us. And that implicitly then creates this whole culture where everything is strict and non-negotiable and imposed on us. And any deviation must be punished, you know, cannot be tolerated. No, you can appeal for exception, huh? That's <laughs> something we do a lot in Singapore. Really? Well, yeah, well, you people are always doing appealing, right? Uh, whether the appeals work or not is a different story. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you, I mean, think think about it, right? Um, one of the key elements of um, our political process uh, is, for better or worse, the meet the people session. What do you do when you meet the MP? What do you, why do people go to the MP? It's to appeal most of the time for, for some cause or another. It's to say that, look, here are the rules. My case, you know, don't, doesn't fit the rules for whatever reason, could be very valid, uh, and I need an exception. Mm-hmm. I need you as a person in a position of political authority to make an appeal for me. So that appeal, it, it does work. It does, I mean, it does work in the sense that um, not that it's successful, but it is part and parcel of our political process, right? So in in that sense, um, yes, there is that there is that you know discipline. But the way to get around it in in Singapore tends to be okay. We'll deal with um, the deviations on a case by case basis. Whether that's necessarily better or worse, I think is up for debate. But that tends to be the way we get around it. But you see that that, that kind of becomes exceptions that reinforce the rule, right? It reifies, you know. Okay, so two things, right? First. You know, people say Singaporeans don't do politics, not political, but you see Singaporeans at Meet the People sessions appealing for exceptions. You see any Singaporean parent at their child's school, right, trying to get a better deal for their kid, trying to get their kid in a good school. You see any Singaporean at an on block trying to convince other people to, to sell, right, so they can get their, their millions. Singaporeans are really political, just not in the sort of high formal politics way. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah. Firstly, second thing is, but, you know, what the, the examples you're bringing up, right, we, we kind of in, implicitly in that, we accept the premise that these are hard and fast rules by saying these are exceptions. You know, it's not here's a process with which we adjudicate things. It's these are appeals. These are exceptions. So the rule is then reinforced by the fact that you're giving, you're making ex- this an exception. Sure. Right. I agree with you. And I think uh, there the issue is there's an exception that the rule is necessarily a good one or at least an acceptable one. Right. That yeah. there yeah. might not be. Well, maybe there's a problem with the rule. And I mean, this is this is this replicates itself. Um, throughout our sort of formal political process. So uh, the appeal when you talk about the, um, 
MPS is, is one. But I suppose what I think is quite curious and quite interesting is the way that our parliament works. So in most parliaments that I'm familiar with, when a bill gets introduced, there's usually, yes, there's a, there's a debate, we have a debate, but there are usually efforts to make amendments. Say, okay, you know what, I don't like this clause, I think it can be made better. You know, the, I don't like this language, it has all these implications that I'm not comfortable with. But uh, in Singapore, that barely ever happens, right? So again, it's that replication of what you've just described, saying, okay, well, the premise is that the rules that are uh, given down uh, from the top are necessarily good and acceptable. And, you know, we might differ a bit on the interpretation and where the exceptions might be, but there's no questioning of the sort of fun fundamental principles uh, or ideas be behind particular rules, which I think is very curious about uh, being Singapore and being, being in Singapore. So coming back to nationalism then, I mean, this seems to me to, to be reflective of the whole way the whole nation state is constructed. To, you know, to come back to my earlier point, it's... Um, imposed on us and then any deviation from it you know it you you can legitimize it by saying it's an exception which then reinforces again this government's view of the the nation right and it seems like it's it's so this idea is so deeply inherent in the whole system and in how we conceive of things it, it itself seems to be have become part of how we conceive of Singaporeanness, or am I taking it too far? No, I suppose it, it, if you talk <laughs> about if you talk about uh, nationalism, apart from the laws and all that, right? It's a set of practices that we engage in yeah. and do, that we reify. Then I think I think there's something there. I mean, it's something that in terms of lived experience and lived practice, how we behave as Singaporeans, um, and so this also brings up the interesting question of whether nationalism and whatever practices and laws that it implies is necessarily beneficial because you can see a situation where acceptance uh, of something that's suboptimal right, uh, would, it would leave you worse off than trying to challenge and change for something better. So uh, that is, a, I suppose, um, an, inher an inherent risk in our system, if you will. Inherent risk. Risk in our system. But to challenge. No, no, to, to accept, right? Uh, including subnormal. Uh, uh, suboptimal. In, including something that's suboptimal. Mm. So actually, I mean, it's not perhaps not even to find out what might be better. Mm -hmm. uh, it's say, okay, well, it's given to me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to challenge or think about it. Yeah. Uh, it might be suboptimal, mm -hmm. but if it is, I'll live with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be good, then, then fine. But the thing is, uh, you're not really clear whether you're just... Um, the best, whether it's the best whether solution. You're just, whether you're just settling for second or third best. Right. Okay, let's bring the, the sort of two halves of our conversation together. Then. Sorry, this has become very disjointed. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's okay. <laughs> um, we talk about nationalism, construction of the nation, and ideas of it, and we talk about National Day. So if you guys could reinvent National Day, right, how would you do it? And, you know, in pursuit of what ideals of the nation or what conception of the nation uh, you know, to to uh, you know, what what about National Day would then, um, you know, in the way that we currently have a theme of National Day that is propagated through the the way it's being held, right? That then express certain ideas about our nation. Um, what would how would you reinvent National Day, and what would that say about Singaporean nationalism? <laughs> 
Wow. I can go first. Yes, please go ahead. (laughs) I would do away with it entirely and I would create, take all the money and I would say to Singaporeans, here's the money, celebrate it in your own way. Because for me, being Singaporean and, uh, you know, what I love most about being Singaporean is the sheer amount of entrepreneurship that we demonstrate. And, you know, people talk about, oh, Singaporeans, we always play by the rules. We uh, aren't very good at entrepreneurship. But I think most of the energy that we use uh, towards that, you know, in, in, in being inventive is, as we discussed, you know, Ian, to get around the rules, right? To get a better deal for us within the framework of the system. And so what we've been very, we've become very good at, entrepreneurial at, is operating within a rules-based framework, but then being very innovative within it. Um, so I guess if you, if, you, if you think about maybe like sort of uh, jazz solos, right, in, in big bands where you have a sort of strict structure and then you can improvise, but maybe not that far. But I find Singaporeans are really good at, you know, this sort of filing complaints and making appeals, you know. And I'd love to see this innovation unleashed. And so I'd say... So I'll make it a national day of appeal and complaint. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, in America, I mean, on July 4th or in Australia, on Australia Day, you know, they all have parties at home. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're all having, in Australia, they're having Barbecues. their barbies. And every home is having a, a party. Uh, don't see that happening in Singapore. In Singapore, in, in Singapore, it's a public holiday. People, you know, leave the country as soon as they can. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, of course, not everyone can leave the country, but everyone sees it as a public holiday and an opportunity to actually go away if they can, if they can afford it. Um, but, you know, it's not celebrated like, in other countries where everyone's having a party. So if you, if you do away with NDP, as you suggested, and the money's disputed, everyone can have hey, a party. What was right? your budget for NDP? <laughs> I, 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 I'm not privy to that. Oh. <laughs> Wait, so you can just, you propose and then they'll tell you if it's within the budget. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Oh, oh um, okay. Uh, but it's, it, is, it amounts to a lot of money. I think yeah. they put it in the budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, every you, year, I think yeah, you look, yeah. it, look, look it up in the budget book. But they might not break it down into like what goes to what, but they'll say this right, is the, budget. the overall budget. That's right. Yes, yeah. Okay. But but of course, there are a lot of uh, hidden costs which are not in the budget. Um, yeah. So uh, whatever is official, you can probably yeah. I'm gonna try and look it up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I I agree with you. I, I think a, a lot of money is spent on it, and I suppose the state thinks that's important for to build up nationalism or to promote this sense of community. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I mean, after 50 years, 53 years, we should be confident enough to say, well, maybe we should, we should change it. We, we should do something else for, for National Day. I wonder if the reason people go away instead of having their own kind of like gatherings and parties is because it's been done in such a way that it feels like there's only this one way to celebrate yes. National Day. And if you're not at the stadium or if you're not watching on television, then this whole day has nothing really to do with you. So you might as well go to like Bangkok mm, and go shopping yeah, yes. for, the, for the weekend or something. So it doesn't feel like it's... Like our participation is needed unless we are watching this parade. If, we, if you don't like this parade, then there's nothing for you on National Day. Mm. 
So maybe that's part of the problem. I always feel very conflicted during like National Day because like even if like even if I know that the producers didn't want to make it propaganda, there's never getting away from the fact that it, it does come across as propaganda. Ultimately, actually the goal of it is propaganda. There's, nobody puts a parade together to not be propaganda, whatever the parade is for. Mm. And so I always have this like in my mind where like, oh, it's propaganda, it's entrenching all these myths about Singapore that's not good for us. We should be questioning and challenging these things. But then like towards the end when the fireworks are coming out and people are singing the songs and I'm like, oh, so many feels. And then like they show the skyline and you're like, oh, yeah. it's so pretty. <laughs> and then you kind of, so it's kind of like whenever I, I watch the parade, which is not every year, but when I do watch it, it's kind of like, I want to be critical, but at the same time, I also don't want to be like the parade Grinch while like everybody else on Twitter is like, yay. Yeah. So, so I'm always very conflicted. But I think if it were up to me, I would get rid of the parade yeah. and leave it open to people to make their own meaning of what they want National Day to be. Maybe they don't even care about National Day. Maybe it's just another day and that's fine. But if you had some sort of meaning that you wanted to add to it, like even Australia Day now, it's become... Like there's a push to make it more controversial to bring up Aboriginal rights mm -hmm. and things like that. And mm -hmm. so people are making meaning that's not necessarily celebratory, mm -hmm. but it's still important because it's about reflection right. mm -hmm. as a community of what our responsibilities are to each other. Mm -hmm. What have we done to each other? What is mm -hmm. justice in this mm -hmm. community? And I think like in New Zealand, they have a similar thing with Waitangi Day, mm -hmm. uh, where you know there's there will be protests by Maori communities about you know this treaty of Waitangi that you signed that you now commemorate as Waitangi Day was not fair it was not just and it brings out all these issues again and then people are forced to sit down and talk about what are our responsibilities to each other what are there reparations that should have been made years of injustice how should we address those things and so even if it's not always like happy happy it's good to have these conversations. I'm agnostic as to whether there's a big parade or uh, whether it's you know, more, you know, a more of a private affair. Of course, having said this, I full disclosure, I did write a piece many years ago, this is in the late 90s, about how it's okay for people to go away and have little things. Um, now, the, to go away, to, to, go, to leave the country oh, and right. go on holiday yeah, if they okay. want to. Mm -hmm. um, but... I think ultimately, I, I think here I agree with Kirsten in the sense that um, I think National Day, one good way of commemoration is to be self-reflective. And perhaps that is something we need a little bit more in Singapore uh, to think about, you know, what have we done to ourselves, to each other? What can we possibly do better? Um, what these, you know, when we talk about the pledge, equality, justice, what, what do these things mean? Democracy, what do, what do they mean? Um, how, how do we know what the standards are? When we see something that is unjust, what do we do about it? What are the mechanisms we use? I mean, the, these sorts of reflections, I, I think, are useful, but of course, that's just, just, just me. And, and many of my friends tell me I'm very strange, and I, I think all, all of your listeners will probably figure that out by the time <laughs> we're done with this. Um, but yeah, so, so that reflectiveness, I, I think, is important. Um, but what outlets do we have after the self-reflection? You know, what channels do we have? No, that's that's a good to you know. That's a that's a good question. Yeah. But I think um, so. In in this respect, maybe I'm thinking ahead. So yes, you know, fifty three years, fifty four years, fifty five. All that is great. But where do we go from here? How do we move ahead 
together. Um, how can we do better? Because like any other country, um, we have our fair share of failings. And I think it's important to admit that, uh, whether it has to do with some, uh, issues of um, uh, racial discrimination, which comes up, right? I mean, I think it's unconscionable, for instance, uh, for us to have to, to have you know, housing ads that you know, discriminate against race, for us to say that, well, uh, there are certain racial groups that will block from uh, employment. Uh, so these things, how, how can we do better on, on these? Uh, and yes, there may not be channels right now, but maybe the issue is to think about how we can find channels, what these channels might be, right? Because, because the issue is how to do better uh, in the years ahead. Because, yeah, I think it's, even if the intent is for it to be celebratory and positive, then it's not like the National Day Parade doesn't come with the risk of doing harm to some of these conversations. So like the sort of narratives that get pushed in the National Day Parade could actually be counterproductive to some of the conversations that we should be having. So I can't remember which year it was, but I saw a National Day Parade where they had um, where when they were telling the Singapore story, they had Raffles come in on the boat, and then it went from Raffles to 65, as mm. if nothing yeah, happened in the true. middle. And these, this sort of telling of the Singapore story is actually counterproductive to a lot of the conversations that we're supposed to be having about what is democracy, about what is grassroots organisation, what is you know, our very idea of the type of people and the type of society that we want to be. If we only see Raffles and Enli Kuan Yew with nothing in between, it actually harms the way or we before, think about right? ourselves. Nothing before Raffles. It's nothing before Raffles. Yeah. Well, that, well, they said before Raffles, there were like fishermen. Then they were like super yeah. happy that, yeah. that... Yeah, occasionally you will get a Sang Nila Utama and then, yeah. and then you will get a Raffles yeah, and then you will get a Li Kuan Yew. Like how many hundred years before Sang Nila Utama and Raffles? And you know, of course, right? next year, there's big celebrations for the bicentenary. Yes. Yeah. Of uh, Raffles Landing. Yes, we celebrate our <laughs> colonialism. I yeah, mean, what I, country being <laughs> colonized? Well, that country does that. Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, well, we talk about Australia. They're a very good example. I mean, they tried to move uh, away yeah, with it yeah, from yeah, talking yeah, about the Aborigines. Yeah. But look, it's basically about white settlers going and taking away land from mm. Aborigines. When you talk mm. about uh, this, is another thing that comes up in the U.S. Not so much July Fourth, but Columbus Day. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, it's about well, you have some Europeans sail over and um, ah, and take over land yes. and also spread disease. Mm. And then you know because the disease killed. Lots of the population, it looks like this the broad native expense, population. Right, the, yes. so it looks like this broad expense of anti-land. Yes, that's because a lot of people have died <laughs> in the millions. Uh, so these, these sorts of things uh, are, uh, well, they were celebrated in, in other contexts. Uh, and so we're not that different. But we are mm. not the Europeans who came. <laughs> right, right. So, no, no, what, what, right, right. That, that's true. But my point, my point being that uh, the whole celebration of something that is actually deeply colonial, that is uh, that is about creating um, authority and subservience. Uh, yes, you're, you're right that we're not the European. Maybe in some ways we've taken that over, but the point is that I think there's still that those elements there that perhaps we can think about a little bit more. It's also the date as well, right? 9th August. Why do we celebrate 9th August of all days? Because the date of our independence from the British was 16th September 1963. That's when we became and you know, independent from the British Empire as part of the sovereign state of Malaysia, right? And that the creation of Malaysia was endorsed through a popular referendum, through a long drawn out political process that was then endorsed in a general election. 
And we were all fine with that. You know, more or less, we wanted to be part of Malaysia, Malaya. But our separation was done totally in secret, middle of the night, by three men, Lee Kuan Yew, Go King Sui, Eddie Barker, drafting you know, these secret documents announced suddenly at a press conference and we fled and, and Lee Kuan Yew cries quite famously. And so why do we celebrate this day that is so associated with failure instead of at least also celebrating the day that we actually became independent from the British colonizer? So there's a very deliberate choice there, right? It's, it's, it's as much, 9th August is as much separating us from Malaysia and our Malay, Malayan heritage as it is, you know, celebrating some sort of idea of independence, you know, because technically we were already independent before that, right? We're just part of a bigger entity. Well, this goes yeah. back to something you said earlier. This is yeah. trauma. So, trauma, so, yeah. so mm, the, yes. the, the way that many nations are built, right, is this moment of trauma. Mm. So in the Singapore case, 9th of August is this moment of trauma, mm. right? Uh, it could possibly be, be amplified. But the, the point is that this moment of trauma is when you need to wipe the slate clean. You need to start all over again. Um, that's that's the sort of I- idea uh, that I think is built into 9th of August. I suppose you could call it Hari Ditendang Keluar. <laughs> Kick out day. <laughs> okay, so I, I looked it up, uh, the costs of NDP, and it's actually very interesting. Um, so there was uh, written replies uh, in Parliament, there were questions raised in Parliament about the cost of NDP, and the cost seems to have really ballooned over the years. So, Glenn, when you were doing it, right, 2002, it's 5.56 million, 2003, 6.25, 2004, 5.43, right? That was the, the years you were yeah. doing it. 2005, at the Padang, it shoots up to 10.3 million. Yeah. And then it's, uh, it slowly climbs. Uh, well, 2006, it drops to 7. Then it goes up to 13, 14, 15, between 7, 8, 9. 2010, it becomes 20 million. 2011, 17 million. Then there's a gap here. And for SG50, it's 40.5 million. And you might say, okay, that's SG50. But then 2016, it's 39.4 million, almost exactly the same cost. So this is a huge amount of money. Mm. Although, although to put it into context, right, uh, the Youth Olympics cost 387 million. <laughs> so, you know, more than the 12 most expensive... Uh, NDPs. But that was spread over a number of days in yeah. NDP. But this year's NDP, they were giving away quite swish, like, tote bags. Like, really nice tote no, bags. No, they, 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 give, they give nice bags every year, but that's because the budgets are really high. Yeah. <laughs> no, but because yeah. I, saw, I saw people on the MRT and I was like, wow, the bags this year are really nice. Do you want one, cousin? Do you mind? Because when I went as a when I went as like a primary five kid, it was just those like string yeah, bags, yeah. and now this year it's like those like the canvas, canvas zips, totes. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's true. Waterproof inside. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but 40, 40 million, right? Yeah. If you then if and, we distribute that, that's not including the cost of all the participants because all yes. it's free, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, the yeah. National service, right? Yeah, yeah. of which um, they're like. Not, 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 not just the national, not, not, not just the soldiers, but I mean the students who perform, the Soka, Soka Association, the People's Association members who, who perform as well. I mean, which amount between three to five thousand. That's not including the national servicemen. Right. Yeah. 
So if we take 40 million and we divide it among, let's just say there are 4 million citizens, yes. uh, give or take, right? That's 10 bucks each. So uh, for those of you who are still listening, if you've made it this far, congratulations. If you had 10 bucks, uh, which you can pool with your friends, your family to celebrate National Day, how would you do it? Uh, do drop us a line, tweet us, uh, or comment on our Facebook page and let us know how you think you would want to celebrate National Day if you had a budget of $10 a person. Um, in the meantime, I think that that's uh, all the time we have, so we'll, we'll bring the show to a close here. I just want to thank our guests, Glenn and Ian. Uh, if um, our listeners want to find out more about your work, uh, do you have uh, Twitter, Facebook, or uh, maybe... You can um, contact me on, on through Wild Rice, um, uh, Glenguy at wildrice.com. When's, when's the next Wild Rice production? Uh, next Wild Rice production um, will be our pantomime, which is um, a Singapore Carol, our version of um, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Oh, and uh, are you going to you know, develop your own idea of Singaporean nationalism? Singapore Carol? What, uh, what is, well, you know? I hope we have been doing it over the past 20 years, you know questioning what it is to be a Singaporean and what are the issues which um, are on people's mouths and minds and what are the problems um, which we are facing. Um, so I think those are the themes that we tackle in our theatre. Fantastic. And Ian, you have a book, right? Yes, I, I have a book. Uh, I mean, my information, it's quite easy to Google me and find me on Google Scholar and so on. And I suppose... Uh, you know, my, my contact details are available if you Google me. And I, there's one thing I did forget to do right in the beginning, I should have, is to say that um, all comments and opinions here are my own, <laughs> and they uh, do not represent that of the National University Dito. of Singapore or, yeah. the, uh, or the That's another Education. very Singaporean thing. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's actually not. It's actually not. It's well, actually okay, not. No. Uh, Because yeah, the, the, enough, thing is, the thing is, I... Uh, the NUS is actually a public institution yeah. and so it's important to because that's t taxpayers money and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I'm doing this on my own time and yeah. my own opinion I don't you know, represent them yeah. cool uh, what's the title of your book? oh it's uh, External Intervention and the Politics of State Formation and I look at uh, China, Indonesia and Thailand in the years uh, 1893 to 1952 cool and thanks to my co-host, Kirsten. Uh, if uh, our listeners want to contact you, your Facebook page is... Uh, it's just my name, Kirsten Han, and my Twitter is at Kixis. But if you tweet to at New Narrative, it's basically me handling the account. <laughs> so same, same way to get in touch. Cool. Thanks, everyone. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like more stories from Southeast Asia, be sure to check out newnarrative.com. We publish new content at least twice a week. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Keep it real. <laughs>